Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussions. I'm Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode four, our fifth episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We're coming to you live on tape from the Idea Factory at the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics. Sitting next to me is my co-host, Marilyn Ritchie. Marilyn, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, I have been having a lot of fun over the last month doing kind of the usual work things, but on exciting topics, which has been different. Um, So first, I just submitted a grant this week. Um, It's an R01, and what was really fun about it is that it's a new R01 on a topic I've never written a grant on before. So it was really a lot of fun to brainstorm and come up with brand new figures and ways to explain something that was really exciting. Um, It's a grant focused on going beyond electronic health record and genomic data and really bringing in social determinants of health, behavioral data, environmental data, and trying to develop some algorithms and strategies for bringing those data sets into an environment with the EHR and genomic data for a biobank. Um, So it was a lot of fun. It's like one of the most fun grants that I've written in a while. And then what else? I have been doing a lot of mentoring that's been kind of niche and unique things that I haven't mentored on in a while. So um, one of my students is getting ready to graduate, hopefully this fall. She's getting ready to ask for permission to write. And so we've been doing a lot of brainstorming about postdocs for her. So that's been really a lot of fun. And then I have another trainee who will finish a little bit later this year, but she is interested in industry and so has been exploring an industry internship. So it turns out that a lot of companies, which I didn't know this, will take interns for a summer before they graduate. And so she is going to do an internship at Merck this summer. So she'll have three months off of grad school to go do an internship. But it's been really neat to learn what that process looks like and help her make decisions. She got like two amazing internship offers and she's taking one that it just, it looks like it's going to be really fun for her. Um, And then One of my former trainees is on the job market looking for faculty positions, and so I've been meeting with him and talking to him about, you know, his job talk and the search, and so that's been really fun. Um, And then the last thing, I've been doing a lot of writing. Um, I have a a GWAS paper from a big consortium that uh, I'm the corresponding author, and we're about to submit that paper, so that's been like two years of work, but it's finally almost submitted. Um, I'm doing some editing for a book that is long overdue, and then I've been doing a lot of writing on my own book that I'm trying to finish. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a really busy month, but lots of different things. It's been been a lot of fun. How about you, Jason? What have you been up to? Well, first of all, uh, I can't believe this is our fifth episode, 
And I was thinking about this. You know, when we started this, I think everybody who starts a podcast probably goes through this thought process, right? Will people listen? Will I have time to actually do more than one episode? And, and you know, we talked about this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy that we've made it to five episodes and that we were able to find the time to do this. And it's been a lot of fun. So I look forward to, to many more this year and, and beyond. Uh, you and I hosted our epistasis discovery in genetics and epidemiology workshop in Florida uh, the, earlier this month, and that went extremely well. I had a great time, and I would say this this was our eighth workshop, uh, eighth annual workshop, and this was the best one yet, I thought. We had some really, really meaningful discussions and conversations, and um, it's a just a wonderful workshop. I love these small focused workshops where you you get a chance to to really roll up your sleeves and discuss new ideas in a safe environment where you know you're not surrounded by critics and people wanting to take you down but you know surrounded by people who who uh, believe in whatever it is you're talking about. So look forward to uh, planning for next year. It's uh, budget season here at Penn Medicine so our medical school, our health system, go through a very rigorous annual review of all the departments and centers that receive central funding from the medical school, from the health system jointly. That's what we call Penn Medicine. So I'm, uh, as an institute director, going through that process now, getting our budgets together, getting our annual report together, and then start a series of meetings that last really almost until the beginning of summer, uh, meeting with uh, various folks from the dean's office to, to review all of that, culminating with a, a meeting with the dean later in the summer. So busy with that right now, and of course, busy with grants. I have a uh, competing renewal going in March 5th that you're helping with, Marilyn. I'm pretty excited about that. I think it's come together really nicely, so we're in the final stages of getting that out the door. And then we have a revised grant that you and I put together with another faculty member here that uh, we need to get to and get that out as well. Um, so that's it. Uh, and other than that, I've just been wall to wall in meetings the last couple of weeks and I'm getting ready to travel next week and I'm, I'm looking forward to having a break from the daily grind of meetings, which gets old after a while. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us at bmipodcast.org. You can send feedback to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our handle is at bmirpodcast and on Facebook. Be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. Hi, my name is Jonathan Haynes. I am professor and director of the Cleveland Institute for Computational Biology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is motivating young faculty. Faculty. Marilyn will introduce this topic. This topic was recommended to us by Dr. Suba Madhavan from Georgetown University. 
She asked for advice on how best to motivate young faculty for independence and success in our field, especially when the show-by-example method doesn't work. Jason, do you want to get us started? Okay, so I, I gave a lot of thought to this, and thanks, uh, Suba, for recommending this. I think this is a really important topic. Uh, the first thing, which I guess is related to the show by example, is to help them see the benefits of their hard work. In other words, lay out the successes that are needed for promotion and tenure, helping them see if they work hard, what, what will come of it. One of the things that I've tried to do for folks in that specific topic is to have them look at other people who they are trying to aspire to be like, who they view as successful and who've done a lot of hard work to get there, I'll suggest to them to look at those people's CVs and figure out, you know, what year was that person in the same stage that that junior faculty is now? Look them up in PubMed or if their CV is public, look at their CV and see what did they do when they were at that stage. So you can't look at somebody that's 15 years ahead of you and compare yourself to them because that can be very um, overwhelming and can make you feel bad. But if you look at where was this person who you view as very successful, who's already promoted and tenured, where were they when they were at year two or at year three? And see where you are compared to them and maybe make that your goal and try to show them, you know, this is what you need to achieve at year two. And it can sometimes really motivate you to try to kind of hit that milestone. That's a great idea. I think I've done that a few times. I've sent a copy of my CV from when I was promoted to junior faculty to say, okay, here's where I was at, just so you can see. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's a good uh, good point. All right, the second one I had is is to help them understand the consequences of not working hard. And, you know, I, I think some fear of failure is a good thing. You don't want people to be consumed by it, but you know, I think faculty need to understand that there there is a very real risk of failure and and to really communicate that, look, if you don't meet these milestones, here are the consequences, the things that could happen. You might not get promoted. You might not get those things that you want That's from right. your career. That's right. And knowing what that alternative means. So if you're not going to get promoted, then what happens? So depending on the university, sometimes you can transition from a tenure track position to non-tenure track. But some universities, it's up or out. And so if you don't get tenure, that means you'll be moving. Well, what are the consequences of that? And like you said, it that fear of failure, as long as it's done kind of gently and in the right way, I think it is sometimes a motivator. If you know, especially if you're at a university that is in a geographically limited area where if you don't ha- get promoted and moving to a different track at your institution is not an option and there is not another institution nearby for you to move to, that means you're moving out of town. And depending on your family and friend situation, that could be very kind of damaging to your entire life sphere. It's not just the job. And so I think just knowing what those consequences are, not just of what it means in terms of not getting tenure, but what else is going to have to change in your life if you don't achieve that can be a good motivator. All right. So these first two, uh, seeing the benefits of hard work, sort of mapping out for somebody the good things that could come, and also the bad things that could come from not working hard. Uh, I think those two are kind of obvious for most people. It's um, the carrot and the stick. The carrot and the stick. Absolutely. So 
So the third one uh, we have on our list here is, and this is something I, I think is very important, is to, is to help young faculty find the things that they enjoy doing. It's easier to work hard when you're motivated, when you're excited about what you're working on. And I can't tell you how many I, times I've, I've heard a faculty member, a young faculty member say, somebody told me I need to focus. I need to pick one thing and work hard on that one thing, that, that one narrow area. And I, I personally, I just think that's terrible advice. I think, you know, as scientists, we're naturally curious. We like to work on different things. We get excited about new things as they come up. And what a terrible thing to tell somebody that they have to forget about those exciting things in their head and just pick one thing and drill down on it. And and I think in this era uh, with funding so hard to get, it's 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 really hard to tell somebody you have one study section, one NIH review panel that you need to go to and focus all your energy on that. Because what if that review panel, what if that constellation of people just doesn't like what you or what you're working on, that's a lot of eggs in one basket. So I much prefer the approach of helping faculty understand that they can work on multiple things, they can get excited about different topics, and I think that helps them find their inner motivation if they know they can they can follow up on things that they, they discover along the way and get excited about. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you a thousand percent. That has come up twice, just in the last two months, that Junior faculty have talked to me about this because, in particular in informatics, and informatics and genomics, kind of the people who kind of bridge that those two disciplines, they're being told, you have to pick a disease area, or you need to pick a cell type, or you need to pick a model system. You need to pick one thing and one type of data that you're going to focus on. And people told me that when I was first starting. They said, well, you need to pick your disease focus. And I said, with all due respect, I'm not interested in focusing on a single disease. And they said, well, what do you want to be known for? When you go up for tenure, you need to be known for something. I said, well, I'd like to be known for my methodology and technology development. And they said, well, that that's not a thing. You need to pick a disease. And I said, well, thank you for your advice. And I moved on and I didn't do it. <laughs> um, so people have been telling other junior faculty, and like, this is 16 years later and they're still telling them that. And I explained to them, look, if you're not passionate about one disease, then don't do that to yourself because you're going to start to hate your work. Focus on what you're excited about and the success will come from that. And I think the other piece of that, like you said, it's easy to work hard on something when it doesn't feel like work. When it's the thing you're excited about and motivated about, it time just flies when you're digging into that. And so I, I think you're exactly right. You have to figure out kind of which topics you're most interested in dive into those. And that also gives you that flexibility, like you said, of the different study sections, also different journals. If you only focus on one thing, there's only a limited number of journals you can go to. And if those editors don't like your work, then what do you do? So I think this is where, you know, certainly early on, diversifying your portfolio so that you have some different venues to test your ideas is definitely the more successful path. Yeah, I have a long history of not listening to advice from people. It's uh, it's worked out okay in my uh, in my case, but I'm not sure it's right for everybody. But I, um, you know, one of the great things about being an informatician is that we can work on different things, right? If especially if you're a methodologist, you can you can develop a methodology that could be applied to a lot of different things, a lot of different questions, a lot of different types of data, a lot of different diseases. 
And, and actually, that's an advantage, I think, of being an informatician is being able to, to be flexible and to say, okay, I'm, here's an opportunity to work on diabetes. I'm going to go submit a grant to NIDDK. Here's an opportunity to work on eye diseases. I'm going to submit a, 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 an application to the National, uh, National Eye Institute, the NEI. And we can, we can switch gears and, and refocus and work on different things as opportunities arise. And I've done that in my entire career, and it's been fabulous. Mm-hmm. Especially with the way that funding has been over the last kind of 10 years or so, the NIH is putting huge amounts of money into one area. And then a couple years later, it shifts to a different area. So like right now, there's a ton of money in Alzheimer's disease research because the NIH is very focused in that area. As an informatician, you can be agile and take your methods and apply them to Alzheimer's data because that's where the money is right now. And if three years from now, all of the money goes into chronic kidney disease, you could pivot and shift your methods into chronic kidney disease. Yeah. So my advice to leaders uh, when motivating their young faculty is, is to help them find those things that they're most excited about and match that also with NIH opportunities and come up with a, a, a diverse strategy rather than a single focal point. Okay, next on our list um, is to give positive feedback, appreciation, and rewards for hard work and success. And um, you know, early on in my career when I was at Vanderbilt University, our vice dean for research at the time uh, sent me a couple handwritten notes. I, when I got my first grant funded, I got a handwritten postcard from the dean's office from this person congratulating me and saying, nice job. I, that meant a lot to me. I put it up on my bulletin board and saw it every day. Uh, you know, that little, that little gesture, it probably took her 10 seconds to do that out of her day, but it meant so much to me. And I got a couple of those handwritten notes from her so that, you know, f- so for leaders, take that time it, to give that positive feedback, it's a few seconds out of your day. It can just be an email, a one-sentence email saying, hey, I noticed this paper you published. Great job. It was really interesting. Those, those little things take up so little of our time as leaders, but it is so impactful for young faculty, and it can really enhance their motivation to work hard. No, absolutely. I try to do that. I mean, even as a mentor, I try to do it to my, you know, for my students and my postdocs um, because – I know what it feels like, even now as a tenured full professor, when I get an email from someone, it just happened last week, somebody was at a chairs meeting and said, I heard great things about you. I beamed, I got all smiley because somebody (laughs) had said something nice about me and somebody else told me. And so what I've tried to do as a leader is when I think it, so I'll come across something and wow, that person did a great job, send a note, Um, send a text. A Slack message, an email, just it can be one sentence. Just wanted to tell you that was great. You did a great job because that 30 seconds of my time has, you know, can have weeks of impact for that person. Absolutely. Okay, the last thing we have on our list is is to put in the time and effort to help them and show that you're committed to their success. In other words, you know, if they send you a paper to read, really read it and give thoughtful comments. If they send you a grant to read, take the time to read, really read it and and give constructive criticism. And you know, the just the act of you taking the time and investing the time in a person says to them that they matter and that you care about them and that their work is important. And that can have a huge motivating effect as well. Yep. And sometimes I do feel like we have to remind people that that we are there to help them and that we're trying to help them. 
Um, there's a line from the movie Jerry Maguire where he's saying to, I think it was Jerry saying it to Cuba Gooding Jones, that character, help me help you. I am trying to help you. Like, let me help you. And I have a few times had to say that to a junior faculty member when I'm, you know, offering suggestions maybe in a more passive way and they're not getting it. And so I'm like, look, help me help you. Here's what you need to do. What can I do to help you get there? And just give them the time and attention. Because sometimes, sometimes it's just a tiny confidence issue that you just have to flip the switch in their head. But really by spending the time, especially when you're really busy and they know you're really busy, that speaks volumes to them. And, and related to that issue, I would say <clears throat> as a word of advice to junior faculty, I've seen a number of junior faculty in my career that come into a new faculty position with a chip on their shoulder, right? They come in from a high-power research lab or with some high-impact publications. They have a, a big ego that, you know, for somebody at their stage is probably justified. But what that translates to is that they're less willing to ask for help, right? Once you build your build up a big ego for yourself, it becomes harder to ask for help because that chips away at your ego if you have to ask for help. So I've seen this multiple times in my career where a junior faculty member is afraid to ask for help, doesn't come ask for help because they feel like they have to do it all on their own because they come in with all this momentum. And if you're that kind of person, you you have to get rid of that. You have to break down that ego and recognize that you absolutely need help. Nobody can do this job alone. It requires mentors. It requires collaborators. It requires you to be humble and ask for help over and over and over again. And, it, and if you're a nice person and do it politely, nine times out of 10, everybody's going to stop what they're doing and help you. That's right. I guess one other thing that I just thought of related to that is a lot of institutions have mentor committees for junior faculty, and I've seen it work really well that the mentor committee gives good feedback to a junior faculty member with what they need to change. And then I've also seen it where one of these junior faculty, like you described, that has a chip on their shoulder has decided that this mentor committee is not helpful and that they're not going to listen to their recommendations. I would say... If that is happening, you know, so as a leader who's watching that happen, if there is a way to change the mentor committee to see if another group can have an impact, that would be useful. For the junior faculty, I would say, man, you've got to listen to that mentor committee because they write letters that go to the chair, that goes to the chair's letter for your promotion. And so if you have not listened to them for three to five years, you're not helping yourself. If you have done all the things they've recommended, you have a much better shot at getting through and getting that chair letter for your recommendation for tenure. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Suba, for this great discussion topic. Okay. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that have caught our eye. I'll start. Uh, there was a piece in The Guardian from January 11th that suggests that we are approaching the limits of computing power and will need better programmers to move forward. In other words, soon we won't be able to count on the doubling of C CPU power every two years under Moore's law. And what this means is that we're going to need to find efficiencies in our computer code. So I thought this was really interesting to think about because there has been a trend with plentiful computing and computing doubling every two years 
uh, for sloppy computer programming because you know you don't have to make your code perfect if you have plenty of computing power, right? So we, we've all gotten sloppy. Um, but as we hit this wall of Moore's Law, what this means is that the computing power is going to slow down. And, and to address that, we're going to have to tighten up our code. So I thought that was a really interesting piece. Especially at a time when data sets are getting bigger, it's not a great oh, yeah. time for computers to get slower. Absolutely. Data's not slowing down, that's for sure. Nope. Okay, next um, is um, an interesting piece that I saw in Science. Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer, was born on January 2nd, 1920. Uh, he would have been 100 years old this year. And uh, this piece uh, in Science was written by Valerie Thompson about his 100th birthday. And she writes, I quote, Asimov fiction was based on the presumption that humanity would solve its problems by thinking coolly and logically. In his nonfiction writing, he often grappled with the messier realities of human nature. There are no records of how many minds he influenced with the latter, but his ability to communicate difficult scientific ideas in simple language has not been equaled since. So um, I really like this piece, and I wonder how many informaticians and AI researchers he's inspired uh, through his writing. Probably a lot. Um, certainly influenced me to some degree, as I read Isaac Asimov when I was young. Um, and I'll just mention as a side note, this, this is something I learned from this article that I didn't know about, that uh, uh, the author mentions that he died in 1992 at the age of 72 after complications from AIDS. He was infected with HIV during a blood transfusion that he received during open heart surgery. Um, and it was interesting, and you could understand why at that time that the family kept this a secret. Um, and thus, not many people know his true cause of death. Um, so anyway, um, thank you, Isaac Asimov, for all your inspiration. All right. Another item is that the Center for Scientific Review at the US NIH posted a review of the distribution of the number of review meetings RO1-funded investigators have participated in over a 12-year period. If you have not seen this article, you have to go look at it. We are, uh, will have the link in the show notes. The numbers were, I thought, shocking. So 94% of this pool of reviewers have participated in between 1 and 36 review meetings over 12 years. 5% had participated in between 37 and 72 review meetings. Interestingly, there are about 15 reviewers that have participated in more than 100 review meetings over 12 years. 100. Oh, How my How is that even possible? I don't know. <laughs> what, how do they get any science done? So the NIH is concerned that the serial reviewers have undue influence in the review process and that we as reviewers should somehow be limited to some maximum re review service. Um, I I have to go back and look at how many I've done because I actually don't know off the top of my head. I know it's nowhere near 100, thank goodness. Um, but I thought this was fascinating and that absolutely we should be sharing the work and, you know, no handful of people should be carrying the burden of all of this review. 
Yeah, I, I really found this fascinating. I, I just kept looking at that chart. There's an interesting visualization. Kind of looks like a, a Manhattan plot, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking back to my own review meetings. I think in my 20 years, I've I've probably participated in something like 40, maybe as many as, many as 50. I haven't counted, but somewhere in that neighborhood of review meetings. I mean, I've done a lot of reviews in my career. For, for many years, I was doing three or four a year. And part of me thinks, man, I'm done. I've put in my service, you know. How about all those people that have only, you know, that have been a professor for 20 years and have only done a couple, you know. Let them get in there and roll their sleeves up and read some of these grants. That's right. Um, The next one, uh, news item, is there's an interesting opinion piece um, in STAT by Ken Mandel and Zach Kahane, and it expresses concern about Epic's call to block a proposed data rule. They start the piece by saying... Epic, the nation's largest electronic health record company and a major beneficiary of a $48 billion Obama-era federal program to promote the adoption of EHRs, has launched a full-scale effort to block the flow of data out of its software and into apps that benefit doctors and patients. That's wrong for many reasons. The new rule from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services would require EHRs to synchronize with third-party apps. According to the piece, Epic is actively opposing the implementation of this new rule as an effort to maintain an EHR monopoly. They go on to say, if Epic is allowed to position itself as the only party able to innovate in health IT, then the health information economy should prepare for a recession. Um, This piece is a very interesting read. As a person who has interacted with people building apps for the EHR and interfacing with uh, vendors and, you know, one of them attempting uh, to interface with as Epic. Um, This is of big concern. You know, there are a lot of very innovative people developing apps that could be very useful for doctors and patients, but they have to be able to link up with the EHR to work effectively. And if we can't do that, I mean, not only is this uh, potentially a kind of economy issue, this is a, a potential medical issue and the fact that we're trying to move toward learning healthcare systems and that's what we're all striving for we need we need this this data flow to happen yeah it's this interesting duality we you know there's a clear benefit to having as many academic medical centers as possible on epic um for the interoperability, et cetera. But on the other hand, the monopoly is kind of scary. You know, the things that are going to be prevented or limited because of, of Epic's uh, monopoly, I, I'm, I'm a little worried about it, to be honest. So anyway, I, everybody should read, read this piece by uh, Mandel and Kohani. Okay, next up, uh, I saw this post on Twitter, Twitter from at Academic Chatter on February 7th, uh, and this was posted as an anonymous question. Quote, I'm a PhD student and feel like I'm doing okay in my program. I love science, but don't think I'm good enough to take up a career in science. How do you know if you're good enough? I think this is a really interesting question. We could actually do a whole discussion topic on this or training advice section on this topic. Um, I This really caught my attention. And I think it's a great question that a lot of students must ponder. Um, First, we all feel self-doubt. I think this is normal in science, especially when you're first getting started. All of us have felt self, self-doubt self in graduate school and early days of getting our careers started. 
And it's easy to look at people who make science look effortless and think that you don't have what it takes. And Marilyn and I covered on a recent episode imposter syndrome, uh, which I think is very related to this. So I replied to this uh, post with the following tweet, quote, success in science depends on passion, patience, hard work, persistence, and ideas. It also depends on the ability to take some risks and, of course, uh, on the help of good mentors. So you can find uh, you can find this in my Twitter feed at morejh from February eighth, and you know science isn't easy, and there are many different components to success. However, I would say effort and interest uh, go a long way. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. It it's not a matter of you being good enough. Anyone can be good enough. You have to have the passion and the interest and the drive and the grit, and then find some good mentors to help you get there. Yeah, and I think the rest follows from that. Okay, uh, last for our news items today, um, we are recruiting a new chair for our Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Informatics here at Penn Medicine. Uh, This is a great opportunity to come work with me and our outstanding faculty in the quantitative data and population sciences to position Penn for the future. Uh, I'll put a link uh, to the ad in the show notes, and uh, we would appreciate it if you could help spread the word. We'd love to find a great new chair to help us move forward. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about what we can do to do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, which we monitor regularly and and, uh, we'll keep an eye out for your posts. Okay, so we received uh, an email from Sina Garamaze. Sina is a PhD student at Virginia Commonwealth University, and he wrote, quote, Thank you for the great podcast. I'm a PhD student in bioinformatics and am fascinated by your podcast and find every minute of it interesting and informative. I wish I could find podcasts of similar quality in other fields related to data science. The only thing is I think the podcast artwork is a little difficult to read. So, uh, Sina, thank you very much, Sina, for those uh, nice, uh, nice words of encouragement. And uh, he sent us a very nice graphic for the podcast, and I agree, it's easier to read. Um, so we'll uh, certainly take it under consideration. Thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. That's great. We were pleased to see our executive vice dean at PenMed EVDCSO post about our podcast on Twitter. It's always nice when your dean notices your hard work. We also received some nice feedback from our friend, Dr. Suba Madhavan from Georgetown, who recommended our discussion topic. She wrote to us on Twitter, quote, listened with great interest all four episodes. Love the publication highlights, conference roundup, your friendly voices, and advice for young faculty in biomedical informatics. Thanks, Suba, for the feedback, and thanks again for the great discussion topic. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, our paper is Visual Analytics, a Comprehensive Overview, published by IEEE. So uh, I'm going to present this paper. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of visual analytics. I've followed this field almost 
since its inception and have dabbled. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I've dabbled in visual analytics um, over the last 10 to 15 years and think that this is a really important topic. In fact, I would go out on a limb and say that of all the things we do in biomedical informatics, I think visual analytics is perhaps the most important, but also the most underdeveloped, underappreciated, uh, underfunded. Uh, I could probably throw a couple more unders in here because <laughs> I think this this field, I mean, if you think about it, uh, a lot of what we do is swim in data, complex data, big data, et cetera. And um, you know, visualization is what makes data easier to work with, easier to understand, makes results easier to interpret. And I would argue that we're inherently visual creatures. Evolution has wired our brains to function visually in 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 a world. That's how we experience the world. It, most of it's visual, right? Mm-hmm. And we should be experiencing data the way we experience the world. So um, I was excited to see this paper. It um, was published in 2019. And um, it has a single author, uh, Wencheng uh, Choi, I think is how you pronounce that. C-U-I is his last name. And he is a PhD student at Norwegian University of Science and Technology in Norway, and I'm guessing that this paper came probably out of his dissertation work. Uh, it was probably the introductory chapter of yeah, his dissertation. Yeah, I was thinking this was a chapter one. And after reading it, I was convinced that this was part of his dissertation because it's very comprehensive. And he's got 178 references in here. And I think he does a really nice job of giving both a historical and up-to-date overview of the field of visual analytics. Okay, so I'll just mention a couple parts of the paper um, that I thought were interesting, and I would certainly recommend everybody read read this paper. Um, so he uh, he credits uh, James Joseph Thomas, who unfortunately passed away in August of 2010, for creating, promoting, and establishing the field of visual analytics. And as I said, this is this is not an old field, and and uh, the author traces it back to about 2004. So um, that's pretty pretty recent, um, uh, just 15, 16 years ago. And he's got a table one in here. And one of the things I I give a lecture on visual analytics every year, and one of the things I do is define the terminology, which can be very confusing. I think it's even more confusing than the field of machine learning and AI, where we are terminology challenged. But he has a nice table in here where he gives definitions of all, a lot of the different terms that we use in the visualization area. So he defines visualization um, as uh, the theory and techniques of creating visual representations of data. And then within visualization, we have information visualization, uh, which uh, are really about representing data in a way that we can understand it. So that's I think what a lot of us do is information visualization, making scatter plots and Manhattan plots and bar plots and all those all the kinds of visualization tools that we use. Um, so that's information visualization, and then he defines scientific visualization as something different, which is really the more the physics, the mathematics of of rendering images on a computer screen for us to look at. Right. So it's it's more of that that side of things. I'm not going to read all these, but he goes on to define interactive visualization. 
human-computer interaction, data analysis, conformatory data analysis, exploratory data analysis, visual data mining, and then he defines visual analytics, which I am going to get to in a second because he actually outlines a couple different definitions in this paper from several different authors. Um, he uh, Next in the paper is a survey. It's a nice historical survey uh, of, of different overviews of, of visual analytics. Uh, he takes us on the visual analytics journey and kind of goes through the history of how it evolved, how it got started, how it evolved, which is interesting to read. And then he gets to the definition. So there are four definitions provided here. And so I'm going to read each of these and then make a few comments. So the first definition he gives is that visual analytics is the science of analytical reasoning facilitated by interactive visual interfaces. Definition two, visual analytics is a method to synthesize information and derive insight from massive, dynamic, ambiguous, and often conflicting data, detect the expected, and discover the unexpected, provide timely, defensible, and understandable assessments, and communicate assessment effectively for action. Definition three, and these next two definitions I really like and, and have adopted versions of these in my own, my own uh, description. So definition three, visual analytics combines automated analysis techniques with interactive visualizations for an effective understanding, reasoning, and decision-making on the basis of very large and complex data sets. And then definition four, visual analytics is a multidisciplinary research field mainly based on visualization, algorithmic data analysis, and analytic reasoning, which takes advantage of visualization and interactions as suitable tools to integrate human judgment into the knowledge discovery process to visually discover explainable patterns, i.e. knowledge, and to gain insight into large and complex data sets. So I like these last two definitions because that's really how I think about visual analytics. It's, it's, it's not just about visualizing your data, but it's about interacting with that visualization in an intuitive way. So interaction, interactive interaction is mentioned many times in this paper. So that's a very important component, but also the integration of data analysis. So what you want to be able to do is to be embedded in your data in a visual manner to be able to intuitively interact with that visualization, but also to be able to launch and get feedback from data analysis. And for the visualization that what you're seeing and and how you're integrating those results to then be fed back into the data analysis. So there's this feedback loop between the visualization and the analysis. And so I think these last two definitions uh, capture that really nicely. In fact, he says here in reference to definition four, he says, however, visual analytics exploits visualization as a tool to integrate human con cognition, perception abilities, and human intelligence into the data analysis process to obtain explainable results. And I really like this. I mean, I think this drives statisticians bananas because it sort of interferes with the unbiased approach that we often think of when we do a parametric statistical analysis. But hey, we're humans. We're, we're trying to understand a scientific process. We're trying to explain something. Why shouldn't we be part of that discovery loop 
both from a data analysis perspective and a visualization perspective. Yeah, I totally agree. That's great. Okay. So uh, next he goes on to outline the visual analytics process. How do you actually do visual analytics? What is the process? And he has a six-step process that he outlines here. So I'll just go through these quickly. Step one is to pre-process the data, clean, transform, integrate uh, in order to prepare it. So that's obvious. We all start there. Step two is to uh, apply an algorithmic analysis method to the data. So that could be a statistical or computational analysis. Step three is to visualize the process data with appropriate visualization techniques. Step four, users generate insightful knowledge through human perception, cognition, and reasoning activity. So this is the interpretation, right, using the visualization and the analytic results. And then here's where I think it, it departs from what might be seen as a standard, um, you know, analytics pipeline. Step five, users make new hypotheses and integrate the newly generated knowledge into the analysis and visualization through interaction. And, and step six, regenerate an updated visualization based on the interactions to reflect the user's understanding of the data. So this is where the human cognition, the, the you know, human understanding, there's a feedback loop here that I think is not part of the standard analytic pipeline where we process some data, we clean it, we do the quality control, we do the analysis, maybe we do some rudimentary information visualization techniques, and then we publish it, right? Why shouldn't we take the knowledge that we've gained from that process and feed it back and do a new analysis that's informed by our deeper understanding and keep iterating through that until we feel like we understand something and then publish it? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think it challenges our, our dogma of how, how we do analyses. And again, I think statisticians wouldn't like this. I don't think you could publish this in the New England Journal of Medicine, although we should be able to. Um, but, you know, something to think about. Um, he's got a, a nice chart in here that shows the growth of visual analytics publications. There were less than 50 in 2004 and more than 4,000 in uh, 2018. So there's been a steady increase in this field. Uh, the rest of the paper, he goes. I'm not going to talk about, but he goes through a bunch of different examples of visual analytics with some nice, uh, nice pictures of different visual analytics tools. I think those are worth looking at. And then he lists some challenges. Uh, so he lists um, the scalability. For example, the amount of data still commonly exceeds the limited number of pixels that we have to display. So that's a challenge, a scalability challenge. And as Marilyn said earlier, data is growing rapidly, uh, but the number of pixels we can see is limited <laughs> on a screen. Mm -hmm. So how do we deal with that? Uh, then there's the challenges around how we interact with a visualization. Um, he talks about the challenges of infrastructure. He says, and I quote, there's an urgent need for a common framework to accelerate the research and development of new techniques. Uh, we don't have, because visual analytics is so new, we don't have standard approaches for this. It's still in the, I would say, very early researchy stages. You know, machine learning and AI is much further along, right? We have standard libraries, we have software, we have approaches, methodologies. I mean, we still have a lot of work to do in AI and machine learning, but it's much further along than visual analytics. Uh, he talks about the the uh, challenges of evaluation, and this is something I've thought a lot, lot about as I've developed visual analytics tools, is how do you evaluate these things? And it's, it's kind of a touchy-feely thing, right? Getting people in front of the tools, and how do you know 
if you know if your visual analytics tool is really better than just a standard information visualization. So I think I'll stop there. I this uh, this uh, PhD student did uh, uh, Choi did a really amazing job putting this review together, and um, I would encourage everybody to take a look at it, and would certainly encourage people to jump into this area. It's an area that needs needs our expertise. Yeah, I thought this was a great paper, so thank you for finding it. I didn't come across it until you shared it to do on the podcast. Um, a couple of of thoughts that I had. So in reading through it and, and even in some of the images that he uses in the paper, it reminded me of um, when I went to an Edward Tufte course on visualization that um, I think you sent me when I was a graduate student, I went to see <laughs> yeah. Tufte. And he tells this story, and I guess, I, you know, this was almost 20 years ago, so I don't know if he still tells the story now, but at the time, he told a story about data visualization and using visualization as a way to communicate important information that is buried in your data. And he talked about the space shuttle Challenger crash that happened um you know, back in, what, 1980-something. Yeah. And he said that... That was the O-ring. Yeah, the O-ring. The O-ring problem. The engineers knew that it was a problem. They had all this data and evidence that suggested that there was going to be a problem. And they kept trying to present it to the leadership at NASA. And they could not convey the message. So... They showed them these different tables and these different charts and these different bars, and they just could not get the data in front of them in a way that was able they would be able to understand it. And so the shuttle launched, and there was an O-ring issue. It crashed, you know, blew up. And, and that – I remember the space shuttle. I was very young at the time, but when I heard that story, it was just very impactful about how important the visualization process is – and being able not only yourself to visualize your results and your data and make interpretations, but to co convey the importance of what you have found to a broader audience. So I thought that was um, a good reminder of it. It's not just a matter of, you know, making sure that you can see what's interesting to write your paper. It's how to make other people be able to see your results in a way that they interpret it to be meaningful. Um, one other challenge that that I thought of as well is assuming that we develop some standards in the space and can evaluate the methods, how do you put that process into a journal publication in a way that's meaningful? So especially interactive visualizations, you know, papers are static images, or not the paper, but all the images in a paper are static. And so if journals can come up with better ways of showing kind of that 3D interactive process that a person goes through whenever they're interfacing with their data. You know, I know your lab has done some, and as of we, some inter interactive visualization approaches, but then when we go to publish them, we get stuck. Like, we have to take a screenshot of like, one of the images that we've come to through that interactive visualization, and that kind of defeats the purpose of the interactive nature of the plotting. So, um, you know, I would, I would ask journals to... Get innovative. How can we make that interactive part of the figures that we see in a paper? And especially now that so many papers are online, there's got to be a way to, 
to use the 3D graphics that we have capability of having on the internet as part of the manuscript itself. Um, and the last thought that I had, I mean, I do think this is booming. So I had a conversation with my son who is 14, um, maybe in the last two months, he's been, you know, he's going to high school next year. He's trying to figure out what classes to take and how to focus. And he's like, mom, I like math. I like science. I like computers and I like art. How can I come up with like, what should I be when I grow up? What do I take so that I can do the things that I love? And I was like, Zach, you need to be a visual analytics scientist. He's like, what does that even mean? Like it's taking data and computers to process those data and come up with visual analytics systems for people to be able to look at the data. And it does take an artistic eye. I mean, part of the interdisciplinary nature of this type of field is that you need somebody who's good at kind of the artistic part of visualization because a lot of us that are more mathematically inclined are used to numbers and tables, and that's not pretty. It's that artistic piece and that human-computer interaction piece that takes takes it to the next level. And so he was very intrigued. It was like lots of big words that he didn't fully understand. But I think I piqued his interest. And, and so I was excited when I saw this, like, yes, this is the next generation. And <laughs> I think it is a good place for him to go into. So as I said, I really like the interactive component of this, that the human needs to be in the loop. And I think the same is true for artificial intelligence. We need the human in the loop. And I think we have a lot of work to do on the AI side. And I love this paper, and this is not a criticism, but I think the I think there could have been an opportunity here to make that connection with AI. And I think, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how do you how do you how do you integrate AI and visual analytics to automate some of this uh, with the human in the loop and doing it interactively? I think there's just infinite possibilities here. Um, so anyway, a lot to think about. Take a look at the paper. We'll have a link in the show notes. Now on to our biomedical informatics conferences update. Okay, first up, uh, we thought we would mention the Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society annual meeting. This is HIMS, better known as HIMS. This is our big health IT conference, and that's coming up March 9th and 13th, uh, very, very soon. Uh, I have never been to this conference. I'd like to go once just to see what it's like. I'm, I'm not really a health IT guy per se, but I think it'd be fun to just experience it, see what that side of the biomedical informatics fence is like. Have you been to this conference, Marilyn? I have not, but it's been on my list as something I'd like to see at some point because I know a lot of our peers that you know are working with us in the health IT space go to that meeting, and they're always preparing for the big announcements and releases that happen there. And so I'd love to see it at some point. Well, maybe if it's in a warm place, we could go next year. Yeah, that's right. Um, the next, uh, just a reminder that the American Medical Informatics Association annual symposium, so AMIA, the deadline is March 11th, so that is coming up pretty soon. Uh, the conference is November 14th through the 18th in Chicago this year. Um, another upcoming deadline is for ISMB, so that's Intelligent Systems and Molecular Biology, I believe. Uh, the 2020 meeting is being held in Montreal, and abstracts are due April 2nd. The meeting will be held uh, July 12th through the 16th in 2020. You know, I haven't been to ISMB since I was a graduate student, so it's been, you know, almost 20 years, but 
Um, I keep hearing that year after year, it is a better and better conference. Yeah, I, I've, I, I don't go to ISMB very often. I actually have a competing computer science AI conference that I like to go to, which always happens to be at the same time. But I've heard great things about ISMB and wish I could go more often. Um, one other conference that I haven't been to, but um, I keep seeing a lot of press about it, is the AMIA Clinical Informatics Conference. Um, we've already passed the submission deadline for this year, but the meeting is May 19th and 20th in Seattle. Um, it looks like it's a really great meeting for the people very focused in the clinical informatics space. Um, Jason, have you ever been to this one? No, but I again, like Kim's, I'd like to go to this at least once and see what it's like. Okay, uh, last, um, we'll just mention ahead of time that the paper submission deadline for the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, which is one of our favorite conferences, um, is coming up at the end of July. And I always remind my students around this time of year that it's not too early to start thinking about papers to prepare because that deadline sneaks up real fast once summer hits. Uh, and it's always hard to work on papers in July, you know, 4th of July, vacations. And so be thinking about papers now. Um, Marilyn, you're on the organizing committee. I don't think the uh, the sessions or the paper, the thematic areas have been put online yet. They have not. So the organizing committee has those. So the submissions were due in early February, and we have a, a big stack of session topics and a big stack of workshop topics, and they look really exciting. I don't know how we're going to narrow it down to the handful that we're going to need in both spaces, but the announcements are scheduled to come out, I think, the second week of March. And so if you go to the PSB website, which is psb.stanford.edu, around that second week of March, you can see what the the topics are for papers this year. And it'll also have the updated dates for when submissions are due. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is leadership skills. Jason will introduce the topic. Thanks, Marilyn. I've had recent conversations with junior or mid-career faculty uh, about the skills required to be a good leader. And I get that I get asked this question a lot, and I've certainly, as a leader, given this a lot of thought over the years. So I decided to make a list of skills and qualities that I think are needed to be an effective leader within the context of a university or academic medical center environment. But I think most of these apply to, to uh, probably any leadership position. So this is a long list. I've, I think I have more than 20 items on this list. So we're going to go through these one at a time. And Marilyn, feel free to jump in um, as you have comments. All right. First, and I think really important, is that a good leader needs a vision for the future. You, you have to be able to see five to 10 years into the future. What are the exciting things that are coming? What are the hot areas? Where do we need to make investments? Where do we need to hire faculty? What are going to be the hot research topics? Uh, so this is a, a very important, uh, very important um, quality of a good leader. And I've seen, you, you know those leaders that have a vision, right? You're excited about their vision of the future, and, and you get excited about where they see things going. And I would say, uh, I would say poor leaders often develop vision by committee. 
you know, they come into a leadership position, they don't really have a vision, but try to extract a vision from their faculty. And what you end up with is usually something mediocre. Crowdsourcing a vision never works. You, you have to be in, you know, you might get input, but you have to really be passionate about something in the future to be, I think, to be a good leader. Yeah, it, it's kind of like, imagine you're going on a journey and you don't have a destination in mind. You're just meandering. That's no way to lead yourself or others to any destination. You have to have a vision for where you're headed so that then you can figure out how to get there. Okay. Now, if you have a good vision, then you can develop a plan around your vision. And that's why a vision is so important, because to develop a plan, you have to know where you're going. Um, So a plan is important. And next, I would say that if you have a good plan of good vision, a good plan, then you have to seek buy-in from your key stakeholders. So you can't just come into a university setting and say, this is what I want to do, get out of my way, and I'm going to do it, and here's, here's the plan for how I'm going to do it. You got, you got to work with people. People have to buy into your vision. They have to buy into your plan. So you got to do the legwork to talk to people and get them excited about what you want to do and get them on board because you're going to need them to help you. That's right. And you, ha- you also need to know what environment you're coming into. So, you know, there are just different cultures and different sensitivities at different institutions. And I think being able to get that stakeholder buy-in requires you to, to know kind of what the environment and culture is and make sure that you build a plan that is, you know, parallel and, and complementary with that culture. You don't want to develop something that's orthogonal to that culture. Or it's not going to go well. All right. So you've got your vision you've got your plan, you've got the stakeholders on board. Next up, number four, is execution and decision-making. And, and this is actually, you know, if, you have a, if, if all the other things are in place, this actually can, can be more straightforward because you're just making the decisions to execute your plan. Unfortunately, I've seen leaders who are bad, poor decision-makers, right? They can't make a decision, they hem and haw, they're worried about making a mistake. Um, but if all the other pieces are in place and are solid, then it should be easy to make the decisions to move forward. Yeah. The worst type of decision maker is the one that doesn't make a decision. You know, even if you make a decision and it's a poor decision, you know, we learn from our mistakes and failures. You pivot and then try something different. But waiting and not making a decision that's stagnant, like that's that, the worst decision possible. That's worse than making a bad decision in, in many cases. All right, number five, uh, and this relates to making mistakes, is your ability to admit to mistakes, fix them, and move on, and and no CYA, no cover your ass. Um, and uh, you know, I'll give an I'll give an, an example from early in my career. I was leading the bioinformatics component of a big big project, um, and uh, you know, I dropped the ball on something. Something didn't get done. It kind of fell off my radar. Um, I lost track of it. And the PI of the, of the big grant called me into his office and scolded me. And my reaction, which was absolutely in retrospect the right reaction, was to apologize, say, I made a mistake, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to fix it and make it right. And I just remember the look on this person's face. This was a senior person, very powerful person at the, you know, at the medical center, PI of this big multi-million dollar grant, and you could just see his jaw drop because the usual reaction from faculty is to make up some excuse. Oh, well, it was such and such as fault, or 
you know, you know, it didn't get done. You know, you, you, you know, it's the tendency is to make up excuses. And I promise you, if you own up to your mistakes and fix them and move on, you're going to be a lot better off than if you lie and make up excuses and try to, you know, weasel your way out of whatever mistake you made. Related to that, encouraging the people you're leading. If you know they made a mistake, encouraging them to own it and apologize for it and make up for it because they will earn your respect and the respect of whomever else they're working with if they just own it. So I really admire leaders who know when they've made a mistake and they apologize to their subordinates and move on and learn from the mistake. You know, you you're, you respect those leaders a lot more uh, for it. Okay, number six, selflessness. Being a good leader is about helping others to be successful. And I think this is a trap that leaders get into is building their own career and thinking about their own future when really what your job is about is helping other people. That's what being a good leader is about. It's helping other people be successful, help empowering other people. That's that's a big part of a job of being a leader. Okay, next, number seven is ego control. I think it's easy to develop a big ego when you're a leader. Uh, you're told that you're awesome, and that's usually why you get into a leadership position. But I think big egos get in the way, and I think we've all seen this in leaders who have egos that are, you know, then the leadership position becomes about the ego rather than the job of helping people and making decisions and building something really good for your university. All right, number eight is hard work. Being a leader is hard work because so many people depend on you. It's a lot of hours of the day that I spend on leadership and helping other people and so if you want to be a leader, you have to recognize that it's not easy. It's a lot of extra hours, a lot of extra hours on things that you might not want to do, right, that are not directly of interest to you, but are of interest to other people. Number nine, on-the-job learning. Um, I think it's a common misconception that leaders naturally know how to do their jobs. I would say every leader learns on the job and gets better with experience. And when they first became a leader, probably did not know even half of what they were supposed to be doing in that role. So uh, something good to keep in mind. Yeah, I think this is a, a key uh, one of these because it it's not only, we're not taught how to lead, right? That's not part of graduate education. We don't have a leadership training. There are courses and workshops and things that you can do, and there's tons of literature and books out there. But I think the key is you start by doing, you learn from that, from what you're doing. And then for the things that don't go well, you have to seek out the materials to do self-education. So you have to go into leadership with a growth mindset and know that as you do more, you will keep growing and becoming better at it. But you can't just learn it in books without doing it. And then while you're doing it, if you're struggling with certain things, then look for resources to learn how to do better. Either look for books or podcasts or look for mentors. So other people who you see doing some particular skill better than than you feel capable. All right. Number 10, have a positive attitude. Nobody likes a grumpy, negative leader, right? And that's hard because leaders have to deal with a lot of stuff that's unpleasant. But I think it's important to keep a positive attitude and be constructive and, you know, have an eye on the future. And you're really the coach. Um, 
And number 11 is related that, to that, the ability to motivate others. You know, that's a big part of your job. And I think a big part of being positive is helping to motivate others to work hard. And we talked about that early in the segment. I think some of those same tips apply for how to motivate people. Uh, number 12 is really, really important. I would say this is one of the most important things on the list is the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes. And I would say this for faculty at, and trainees at any stage in their career. The ability to understand that somebody else may be behaving badly, not because of you, but because something's going on in their life. They're having a hard time at home or with a loved one or have, has, have had an unfortunate series of chance events, right? A bunch of grants rejected in a row that really have nothing to do with the quality of the science. And so, you know, if somebody's behaving badly, Try to, try to understand their situation and that they may have an issue that's out of their control that's explaining their bad behavior, um, both, both from a leadership point of view and I would say as, you, as somebody who's not a leader interacts with leaders and other, other colleagues. And number 13 is related to this. Don't take things personally. I would say nine times out of 10 when someone behaves badly to me, it really is not about me or anything I've done specifically. It's usually something, you know, more about, about them or some limitation they have, or like I just said, some personal issue that they're having. And so it's, it's good to get into the practice of not taking things personally, letting things roll off your back, especially the first one or two or three times it happens. If it's, you know, if it's a repeating thing, a pattern, then, you know, there's reason for concern, but yeah, I think this is a really good point because as a leader, there are times that that we need to do things or make certain decisions that maybe are not going to be popular amongst everyone, but it's the right thing to do for the institution or for the center or or for the group. And when you have to make an, a decision that is not liked by all, there will be people who will be angry and frustrated with you. And often those are the people that will be the loudest and come and see you about it. And I think it's so important to realize that when they're angry, even though it might come across that they're angry with you, it's important not to take it personally because it's it's not you as a person. It It's a decision that had to happen. So they're not mad at you. Or even if they think they're mad at you, deep down, it's not you as a person. It's the, the action that that had to be taken because it was in the best interest of the organization. Absolutely. All right. Number 14, uh, a good leader has the ability to give people the benefit of the doubt. So I think this is related to what we've just been talking about. Number 15, recognize talent. As a leader, you have to hire people and you have to depend on those people. And so the ability to hire, recognize good people and hire good people is really critical for success as a leader. And I would say recognizing if if there's a problem with the talent is the other piece of that. Um, sometimes there's an intangible kind of instinct or spidey sense that you have about a person that's either po really positive or negative. And sometimes you can't even articulate why this talent is so stellar or why this person is just not right for the position. But you have to go with that gut instinct as a leader. Even if on paper they look perfect, if you feel like they're not, or if on paper they don't look quite right, but you just have a hunch that they are, you've got to follow your gut. Yep, I, I agree. 
All right, number 16 is really important. The ability to delegate and not micromanage. Um, you know, the leaders that I respect are the ones that are able to, you know, to, to, to work with people and pass on uh, things that need to get done and trust people to, to do it and to do a good job. And ineffective leaders are often the ones that are micromanaging and trying to control every little thing. And, you know, a good a leader just doesn't have time to micromanage and ends up not only doing a bad job because of the micromanagement, but pissing everybody off who's being micromanaged because nobody likes to be micromanaged. We all hate it. Absolutely. All right. Number 17. And this is something I've really paid a lot of attention to in my career and I think has helped me tremendously as a leader is to learn from successful leaders watch and study. And I would say the reason I, I could easily make this list was because of this reason that I, over my career, I would say my entire 20 years, I have studied leaders with interest. How do they act? How do they make decisions? How do they respond to situations? How do they, when you're in a committee meeting, Right where something serious is being discussed, how how do different people respond, mm-hmm. and and how do they articulate their thoughts, and uh, how do they handle themselves when they're under attack? Um, and I've studied, paid attention over time, and noticed those things that I really like in leaders and how they respond and and notice those things about leaders that I really dislike and internalize those and learn from them and try to emulate those things that I really like in leaders. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it's so funny. My son sent me a, a meme or a, an Instagram post that he had seen that said, if you are the smartest person in the room, you need to find a new room, which I, I kind of had a conversation with him like, how, okay, why did you come across this? And like, what did this mean to you? But I've heard this a few times. And I try to do exactly that. Watch other leaders. So if if I'm the only leader in a room, I have to get myself into other rooms so that I can watch and learn. Because when you're leading the group, sometimes it's hard. I mean, there is a, a bit of learning from your subordinates as well. And you know they can kind of mentor up. But I feel like I learn so much more when I am kind of the the less known leader in the room and I can watch and learn. And and so it's key to get into that environment, get amongst those people that you can learn from. Absolutely. All right. Number 18 is good communication skills. I think that goes without saying. Number 19, good social skills. The ability to interact with people um, is important. And number 20, honesty and trust. I I really like this one. I I I just think there's no excuse for a leader being dishonest. And it really, really annoys me when I'm interacting with a leader that I know is being dishonest. It bothers me to no end. And I'm sure it does most people. Oh, yeah. And, and you know when a leader's being dishonest. It's, look, for the leaders out there listening, it's transparent. We, we know, and I'm speaking to myself too, we know when we're, you know, when a leader's being dishonest. It's, everybody knows. You can sense it. You can feel it. You can smell it. It's often obvious. Mm-hmm. And it's so discouraging to other people who might want to be leaders. So when I have seen that happen and I'm watching it and everybody in the room knows that it's happening, Absolutely. all I keep thinking is I don't ever want to 
be in that position? How do I, like, if you have to be dishonest to have that title and that role, then that's a role that I don't ever want to have because that that lack of transparency and dishonesty, it, it just, oh, it has such a negative impact on everyone. Absolutely. And it, fe- it feeds back to some of the other things we were talking about, about owning up to your mistakes. You know, don't lie, just own up to it that's and people right. will respect you for it. Uh, All right, number 21, I think this is our last one. Take time to recognize and reward the hard work and success of others. And we talked about that in the first, the discussion segment, how important that is and how meaningful that that is to people's lives. And the last thing, I thought of one while we were talking, and Marilyn, you kind of touched on this, is intuition. And I think good leaders do have an intuition about what the right thing to do is or what the right decision to make is. And And unfortunately, that's not something that can be learned. I mean, I think it's something that can grow with experience, but um, but I, I think there is there there's something that good leaders have that perhaps can't be learned. Yeah, and one last thing I guess related to that is is knowing yourself. So I do remember when I did a leadership training once, one of the things they had us do was a personality inventory, and there are different ones. There's Myers Briggs, there's DISC. Those can be really helpful in understanding what type of person you are, and then figuring out how to use your strengths, you know, as strengths, but then wherever your weaknesses or your blind spots are, those are the areas as a leader that you can focus on and work on so that you can become an even better leader. Okay, I think that's it for uh, our training segment, and uh, we would love to hear feedback about this, by the way. If there are things not on our list that you would like, that you think are important, feel free to let us know, and we'll try to bring them up next time. Jason, any closing remarks? Well, this has been uh, a great podcast. I think we've covered a lot of really important and interesting topics. Um Before I forget, I just want to thank our sound engineer and editor, Michael Stauffer. Thank you for all your hard work to make this possible. Marilyn and I... thank you, thank you. We couldn't do this without you. We would never get this done without help. Um, And uh, again, I I just think it's great. We've been able to complete five episodes in a reasonable amount of time, and, um, and I feel like it's been well-received by the community. And we've had over a 1,000 downloads now. I think that's an important milestone of you know all the episodes. That's so amazing. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Marilyn, do you have any closing remarks? Yeah, no, you know, it's funny. Um, as I saw that we had that many downloads, it, it gave me kind of validation that what we're doing is important and that we should be doing it. I listened to a podcast last week by Lewis Howes. Um, he has a podcast called The School of Greatness that I really like. But it, the topic was, should I do a podcast? And so there were different people that um, were asking him questions about doing a podcast. And his answer, by and large, when whatever their niche was that they wanted to do a podcast on, almost every one of them, he said, no, you shouldn't do a podcast. And the reason, he said, unless you are committed to doing it on some regular basis. You decide whether it's weekly or monthly, but you have to be consistent and you have to plan, I'm going to do this for the next three to five years. And if you're not interested in doing this, don't start because nobody's going to listen if you have one or two. You have to be consistent. But the other element that he said, you know, if you're doing it to make money, stop because unless you, you know, get picked up as one of the huge podcasts, you don't make any money. 
But he said, if the reason that you want to do a podcast is because you have a passion about the topic and you want to reach more people than the people in your tiny network and you're you're passionate about it and you want to make a difference in the world, then make the podcast because this is a way that you can reach people who are outside of your circle. And when I heard that, I was like, yes, like that is why we're doing this. We're really passionate about mentoring students and junior faculty and that's primarily what this is about. Yes, we only have one segment that's specifically training, but all of the topics are a way for us to teach more people about biomedical informatics and reach the people that aren't here at Penn or who don't follow us on Twitter or kind of really expand that reach. And so when I heard that, I was like, all right, Jason, we're doing the right thing. I'm glad we're doing this. (laughs) Awesome. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.